From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about Walmart. It's the biggest employer in America. The company has raised wages and become more socially conscious over the last decade, but it still provides a case study of the limits of socially conscious capitalism. Rick Wartzman will explain. His new book on Walmart and its workers is titled Still Broke. But first, Abortion rights voters are reshaping politics this year. John Nichols will explain in a minute. It seems like we just finished the 2022 elections, but we already have some big ones coming up in 2023. And one special election last week has already showed that abortion rights remains a potent political force for liberals and progressives. For comment and analysis, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. John, it's an honor to be with you. Well, I'm sure you remember that before the November 22 elections, various pundits and polls declared that since it was already five months after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, and since five months is a long time in American politics, abortion rights had lost its power as an issue to turn out liberal and progressive voters. And of course, that turned out to be completely wrong. We saw four states where Democrats flipped control of a state legislative chamber, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and my home state of Minnesota. Those were all states that elected pro-choice Democratic governors as well. But social conservatives are still working to restrict abortion rights in the states. For example, Virginia, where Governor Glenn Youngkin would very much like to be considered as a 2024 GOP presidential prospect. Tell us about the latest news about abortion rights voting in Virginia. You've set it up very well, my friend. And I think that the core thing to do is as we focus down into Virginia for a moment is to recognize this is a national phenomenon. There is simply no question that uh, concerns about maintaining abortion rights are influencing our politics to a far greater extent than the political elites or the pundit class imagined. And so they're playing a lot of catch up. And one of the things that we've been doing at the nation is paying close attention to special elections and some of these down ballot elections where you can keep measuring the influence. And Virginia is a, is a real you know, critical battleground because uh, a couple of years ago, Virginia had its, uh, they have off year elections. They, they are in the odd years rather than even, and they elected Glenn Youngkin as their conservative Republican governor. And the Republicans did quite well in the legislature. They won a lot of seats and got uh, a good position in the in the House of Representatives there, their, their lower house. They also got a pretty good position, but not majority in the Senate. So Youngkin has been trying to pass a, a 15-week ban on abortion to narrow the access to abortion. It's not the most extreme proposal, but uh, it's, it, it is certainly a limitation of abortion rights. And he's got the ability to move it, you know, quite a bit of the way, but he's had a barrier in the Senate. There's one, there was one Democratic senator who was shaky. And so Yonkin felt like if the Republicans could win a special election that took place uh, last week, Tuesday, um, that they could they could be in a position where maybe they could 
could pass this limits on abortion rights. That would be huge to happen in Virginia, a state that had generally been seen as trending in a liberal direction. Well, they had an election there down in Virginia Beach, and the uh, Democratic and Republican candidates, both local, uh, ended up having a huge amount of money flow in. Millions of dollars flowed into that race uh, from pro-choice and anti-choice groups. It became a real referendum in many ways on abortion rights. And though it was a Republican seat, historically Republican seat that had been held by a Republican until it went vacant just you know before the special election, the Democrat won. And the Democrat won, not by a landslide, but comfortably enough. The Democratic uh, winner's name was Aaron Rouse. Now, I understand that he had been a former player for the Green Bay Packers. Did he mention that in his campaign? He sure did. Um, and uh, and rightly so. As a Wisconsinite, I will tell you that anyone who's associated with the Packers should highlight that as a, as a great claim to fame. And no, Aaron Rouse did, in fact, speak about uh, being a former football player. And he talked about uh, in his ads, even had video from it and talked about, you know, playing defense. Right. You know, making sure that you protect. And 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 he made the connection between that and abortion rights. And he said, you need somebody in the legislature who's going to defend abortion rights. Um, it was creative advertising. It was it was smart, good humored. Um, he's a very good candidate. There's no question of that. But again, this was a Republican district. So he had to climb you know, a few extra steps to win this. And he did. Now, what that did in a couple of levels is a really big deal. It clearly solidified the pro-choice majority in the Virginia Senate. So Glenn Youngkin is not going to get his 15-week abortion ban. That's a big victory, one that ought to be noted in the overall national struggle on these issues. But it's also a signal for the rest of this year, because uh, Virginia, the Virginia special election uh, is the first of the special elections that are going to be taking place all over the country. And let's remember that what the Supreme Court did was not ban abortion everywhere. It just gave the states the power to decide whether to further restrict or further protect the right to abortion. So it really shifted everything in abortion politics to state elections. And where else are elections for state legislatures coming up in the, this year? A lot of our, our political class tends to operate on a mode that in even years you cover an election, either for president or the midterm elections for Congress. In odd years, well, then you can go cover a little bit of governing, go back to Washington or whatever. But the reality is, and you know, I, I don't spend time around Washington. I'm out in the, in the country because that's where usually the political action is. But especially that's true in odd years like this. And we're going to see actually a lot of, you know, hundreds of legislative seats decided um, some will be decided in special elections, like the one we've just been talking about. But some states have regularly scheduled elections in an odd year. For instance, this year, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Louisiana will elect governors. Now, what's remarkable about that is two of these states, Kentucky and Louisiana, have Democratic governors, even though they're very, at the national level, very Republican states. So it's important to watch these odd year elections because sometimes they can produce odd results, unexpected results. But also in these states, in Virginia, for instance, the legislature is all up for grabs. There's going to be major legislative elections. You're going to also have legislative elections in a number of these other states. 
And so as a result, uh, you've got, I think if I'm correct, six legislative chambers that are effectively up for grabs this year. And then because of special elections around the country, including one coming up in short order in Pennsylvania, uh, where there's a pretty close legislature, we have uh, all sorts of places where the 2023 elections could well make a major signal, not just symbolically, but also practically as regards the ability to protect abortion rights. They also obviously give us signals and indications for the 2024 presidential and congressional elections. And what do you consider to be the biggest election of 2023? Oh my gosh, Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I love all my elections. I think the Kentucky gubernatorial election is a, is a really big deal because there you've got a Democratic governor running for re-election who has been no great lefty, but he's really held the line on a whole host of issues. I'll tell you where my excitement and interest is going to be is in Mississippi in the governor's race because Elvis Presley's cousin is running <laughs> as the Democratic nominee for governor or likely Democratic nominee. He hasn't been nominated yet. Brandon Presley and he's actually a, an elected official, a public service commissioner, a very credible candidate, and he is not above mentioning his cousin. And isn't there also an election in Wisconsin coming up in 2023? Well, I didn't want to brag, but um, <laughs> of course, the most important election of 2023 is in Wisconsin, my home state, and it is a race for the state Supreme Court. And this is a big deal. The state Supreme Court in Wisconsin is divided between four conservatives and three liberals. And one of the conservative seats is open. If a liberal takes that seat, it will move to a 4-3 liberal majority. That will allow the Wisconsin Supreme Court to protect abortion rights and perhaps most importantly, address gerrymandering. And Wisconsin has one of the most radically gerrymandered legislatures. If a case is brought and this court gets to revisit the question of how legislative districting and congressional districting occurs, um, you could see a a sea shift in Wisconsin politics to the point where I dare say Wisconsin could be more progressive than Minnesota. I'm speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, this comes back to big swing elections. And the, the big election that defined much of the modern era in American politics was the 2010 Republican wave election the first midterm election after Barack Obama was elected president. And you had a real Republican wave in the states. Um, In Wisconsin, Scott Walker came to power. And one of the first things that he did was start restructuring politics. Uh, Not not labor law alone, although he's very famous for that, but restructuring politics in a way that made it easier for Republicans to win. They gerrymandered the legislature to the extent that in some elections, Democratic candidates would get 200,000 more votes aggregated for legislative seats, and yet the Republicans wouldn't lose a seat. And so it's a terrible gerrymander. It's overwhelming. If the court actually looks at it in a fair and honorable way, um, that can be undone. And The the state Supreme Court election is in April. I understand there's a primary before that. Yes, in uh, late February. And there are two conservatives running and two liberals, which is great. I mean, it's nonpartisan. So two candidates will come out of it. And theoretically, if the right break occurred, you could have two liberal candidates come out of it, but that's unlikely. What's likely to happen is you're going to get a liberal and a conservative. Um, There's a former Supreme Court justice running, uh, conservative justice, who got beat 
two years ago is very, very conservative. And I think he may have the upper hand. He's backed by a lot of very wealthy people. The two liberals, one is a circuit court judge from Milwaukee and the other circuit court judge from Madison. Either of them, I, I think, could fairly be said to be likely to serve as progressives. Uh, so the primary is a big deal. But I will tell you that if you do get that liberal conservative race in April, it won't just be you and me talking about it, John. <laughs> Um, the whole country will be paying attention to it because this Supreme Court race could end up getting rid of gerrymandering. It could create a situation with fairer maps for Congress where you pick up two Democratic seats in Wisconsin. And just think about that when you have the Republicans only have a five seat majority in the House. And then, of course, Wisconsin is the eternal battleground state in presidential politics. And you know that the Republicans have been very active in trying to mess with election law, not just in Wisconsin, but all over the country. If you had a, a, a pro-democracy Supreme Court, that could be a huge deal. Last question. I see you have a book coming out next month. Uh, this is one where you've got a co-author. What, what's his name? He's a, I, I think I, I am the lower rung co-author on this book, uh, but it is Senator Bernie Sanders. And we have a book coming out that uh, is titled, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. Fabulous title. If you want to understand many of the issues that divide America and that, that challenge this country, you have to look at it through a lens of capitalism, what it does, how it operates, how it is perverted in many cases by uh, extreme greed, uber capitalism, as we refer to it, and also why we should understand that there are rational, doable repairs that we can we can fix a lot of what challenges this country and so we use a, we rely a lot on ideas that came from other parts of the world uh for instance we interviewed the education minister of finland uh, <laughs> about finnish education which is by all accounts very good and uh, <laughs> so at, at the end of the day hopefully it is an argument that we can and should start looking at alternatives to the way we do things doesn't mean you're going to reject you know, everything we do. It doesn't mean that you will adopt holy ideas from other places. What it does mean is that as we start to think about this and think about particularly how we make sure that working class Americans have a fair shake and actually have a chance to live in an equitable and, and decent society, if we build from that, we can, we can realize many of the great dreams for America. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. We'll be talking about this next month. And the month after that, we'll be talking about the Wisconsin Supreme Court election with John Nichols. Right now, you can read his new article, Abortion Rights Voters Are Reshaping Politics at TheNation.com. Thank you, John. Honored to be with you as always, John. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about the limits of a socially conscious capitalism. For that, we turn to Rick Wartzman. He's written for Fortune, Time, Business Week, and especially Fast Company. He's the author of several books, most recently, Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Rick Wartzman, welcome back. Hey, great to be with you. Well, Walmart is the largest employer in the world, the largest private employer other than government. The Walton family, the children of the founder, Sam Walton, is the richest family in the world with an estimated wealth 
Google tells me, of $224 billion. For decades, we complained about Walmart's low pay and terrible employment practices. Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a memorable chapter about Walmart in her classic book, Nickel and Dimed, about how bad it was to work there. That book came out in 2001. But since then, Walmart has changed. First of all, remind us how bad Walmart was 20 years ago. Yeah, so uh, awful. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, the most vilified employer in the country. Um, and and I think in, in many ways, rightfully so. You know, this was a company that had always had this model of delivering, you know, goods to people, some high quality goods, but at low prices. But there was a high, always been a high human cost that comes with those low prices. And although consumers benefit every time they push a cart down to the Walmart checkout line, uh, they save money on their goods. And Walmart, I should say, has always seen that as part of their social mission, right? To provide affordable goods to, to folks who otherwise wouldn't have them. Again, high human cost to that. So whether it was driving manufacturing overseas, constantly chasing labor and uh, expenses to the lowest cost country one after another, uh, certainly changing the face of many communities by you know pushing mom and pop Main Street businesses out. And then, of course, in terms of how uh, it paid its own workers, it has always paid low wages, as do many, and in fact, most retailers um, and, and many other industries. Folks really have always had a hard time getting by on a Walmart paycheck. Yeah, let me just add a personal story here. My mother's family ran a men's clothing store in Superior, Wisconsin. For a hundred years, everybody in the older generation worked at the store at some point in their lives. And uh, when they were getting ready for their 100th anniversary celebration in 1999, Walmart opened a store in Superior, Wisconsin, killed all of downtown. All the stores went broke, including my mother's family store. My mother suddenly lost a big part of her income and became poor. So to save money, she started shopping at Walmart. Wow. Walmart killed a thousand other downtowns and small Midwestern cities. Tower Avenue in Superior, Wisconsin was one of them. That really changed America. It really did. And look, I, you know, in some ways we, I think, romanticize what the jobs were like at those small businesses. And there is actually a lot of evidence that even companies like Walmart pay better and provide better benefits than a lot of those very small family-owned businesses, unless you are a member of the family. You know, I'm not sure that those workers were making you know, much, if anything, above minimum wage themselves. But certainly aesthetically, in terms of the character of downtowns and, and places like Superior, Walmart changed things, along with other big box retailers. Uh, markedly. The other thing to add is back in 2005, 2006, 2007, you know, Walmart was vilified, you know, a lot because of its actions, but also because two unions, uh, the Food and Commercial Workers and the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, really went after Walmart. And Walmart, as the biggest company in America, the biggest employer in America, really became the poster child for them of everything that was wrong with corporate America, paying workers not enough to live on, uh, folks who didn't have adequate health care benefits and were turning to public assistance, Medicaid or food stamps to scrape by. Walmart became the target of two really immense union campaigns, public campaigns, um, and that also really hurt their reputation. I know in your book, you quote Barack Obama campaigning for president in 2008 saying, 
I know I won't shop there. Yeah, I, right. He was not going to step foot in Walmart. That's right. And then, and then Walmart changed, and so did their relationship to Obama. Yes. So, yeah, what really happened and what my book details is the changes that Walmart has made uh, starting in 2015 and uh, continuing on through the present. And it is the backstory of how they came to make this change. Um, all the pressure that we just talked about, the union campaigns, other labor activists, this group, our Walmart, now United for Respect, I suspect some of your listeners are uh, know about. They put a lot of heat on the company over time. Politicians like Bernie Sanders, the interfaith community, right? The nuns are always after Walmart. Journalists like myself, a lot of pressure to change and business operation reasons, which we can talk about. So starting in 2015, Walmart began to raise wages. Earlier than that, under the previous CEO, uh, Lee Scott, they began to uh, make changes around env their environmental practices. They became a greener company, a more sustainable company. Far from perfect, but widely seen now in the eyes of many mainstream environmental organizations as a real corporate leader in that area. They began to give away billions of pounds of food to food banks. They lowered the price of prescription drugs. They became a more socially conscious company. And then again, in 2015, they actually, the last piece to sort of come into place was actually doing something about wages and investing in their workers. A new CEO, Doug McMillan, who's the current CEO, came in uh, in 2014, and and they began to actually take steps in that area as well. And so, you know, the subtitle of my book that says a remarkable transformation, not not composed casually. I want to talk a little more about why Walmart changed. You've talked about the public campaigns by the unions, by the nuns, by Bernie Sanders. There was also some personal campaigning by individuals connected to some of the Walmart family. There were well, there were folks on the board. There were internal change agents that the company uh, brought in, including some, you know, longtime Democratic operatives um, like Leslie Dock, others uh, who had been either in the Clinton administration or or part of you know Clinton campaign, and then eventually folks who came in uh, from the Obama administration and the Democratic aisles of, uh, on the Hill, and so. Yeah, this was a company that I think, you know, in many ways really did set out not just for PR reasons, but for all kinds of reasons to, to really change and invest in its workers in new ways. A lot of this was a business imperative. They had cut labor costs so deeply that their turnover was so high. Somebody told me it was up to 200 uh, percent. There's an anecdote in the book where a top executive goes in to a store and you know she was told by the manager the turnover was 400%, right? <laughs> wow. So every worker you see, you know, you know, there there're four others who've been in that job, you know, over the course of a year. Just incredible. And you really can't run a business well and they weren't. Shelves were empty, they were having trouble keeping just things in stock. They floor the floor was dirty, the bathrooms were unkempt and they were losing customers as a result. Um sales were declining and so you know, Doug McMillan knew he had to invest in in the workforce in ways that they never had before. However, one thing did not change, and that was their relationship to unions. Yes, they have always been virulently anti-union. Um, and yes, to the point, frankly, that the food and commercial workers, I think, has largely given up even trying to organize Walmart, you know, even today, while Amazon, their their efforts to organize Amazon, their efforts to organize Starbucks and, and many others 
right? It was certainly a, an aggressive year for, for unions and organized labor, uh, you know, in 2022. And, and we've seen all kinds of activity accelerate. You know, Walmart, I think, remains, frankly, beyond the, the reach. It's just, it's too big. It's been too, too big a mountain to, to climb. So Walmart did increase wages, mm-hmm. but the title of your book is Still Broke. Tell us about that all the positive things that they did started to get them attention and and in good ways right from a company that had been so vilified so barack obama for example you know he visited a walmart while he was president he visited a store in mountain view california to tout the company's environmental sustainability practices and frame his own energy policy michelle obama um who had also you know sort of spoken out against walmart you know she uh, ended up touting the company for um stocking foods with less fat, sugar, and salt on their shelves and and helping with her Healthy America campaign. And so the company really did turn a corner in many ways. And the president, President Obama, called when they began to raise wages in 2015 to praise Doug McMillan. He called from Air Force One. And uh, again, there was a real uh, relationship between the White House, the Obama White House, and the company at that point. The bottom line is, The average Walmart worker still makes less than $29,000 a year. In 2015, when they began to raise wages, at the time, the starting wage was seven, six, the average starting wage was $7.65 an hour, barely above the federal minimum wage. And to their credit, they raised their starting wage to a minimum of $9 and then $10 in two steps. It's now to $12. Their average wage is up over $17 an hour. So all, you know, very, very positive in terms of the direction they push. They've invested in training. They're providing better benefits. They're moving more to full-time workers and fewer part-timers, all to the good. But at the end of the day, again, the average Walmart worker still makes less than $29,000 a year. All too many remain on food stamps and Medicaid to scrape by. And so what this has told me, John, is that this is a company that, again, has really had a remarkable transformation in the context of their own history, of of being in a a, low-wage model. They have pushed, they have pushed, they've made these changes, and yet their workers are still broke. In many ways, for a company that I believe does care and wants to fix this, it's still broken, and our society is broken. And what this showed me is that corporate America on its own will never move far enough or fast enough. They're boxed in. They can't do it. We've dug the hole too deep. The only way to fix this is, I think, a government-mandated solution. You've emphasized that the unions have not made any progress with Walmart. I think partly that's because Walmart operates in so many anti-union states. And so the only way to really reach most Walmart employees is with a higher federal minimum wage. Remind us what the federal minimum wage is right now. It's seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour, and it and it's been that way since two thousand and nine. What's your estimate of what a living wage for workers at Walmart and everywhere else would be? Right. So in my book, I I have a very full-throated cry for a twenty-dollar an hour federally mandated living wage. That is a family living wage. Um, it's actually calculated by um, a wonderful organization that spun out of Oxfam America called Living Wage for Us. It's based on real data analysis and what it takes to to provide for a family, the average size, the typical size working family in this country. And what they find is that 
and the reason I picked $20 an hour, 80% of Americans live in a county where the family living wage is $20 an hour or higher. Then I want to switch a little to Walmart today, after the pandemic, after the rise of Amazon. Uh, how how big a threat is Amazon to Walmart today and in the future? Uh, you know, I, I don't think Walmart's about to topple over from from anybody, even another Goliath like like Amazon. But it's fair to say that there is, I think, no decision that Walmart makes, no strategic move. Um, big policy change without Amazon hovering over its shoulder as it as it makes those decisions, and probably vice versa, right? These are the two Goliaths slugging it out um, in the retail space. Um, and interesting, like interestingly, right? Each is kind of moving into each other's turf. So, right, you see Walmart has over the years, obviously, Walmart.com has become you know much bigger, and they are doing much more online. But Amazon at the same time is moving right a bit more, whether it's its purchase of Whole Foods or others, you know, steps it's made is moving more into brick and mortar um, after wiping out so much brick and mortar. <laughs> and they're both playing in the same space in terms of expanding into health services, financial services and other things. I know you've been reporting on Walmart for something like 20 years Going back time. to the LA Times, I think it was in 2003. Of course, you've done a lot of other things in the last 20 <laughs> years too, but what's it been like to follow this one story for such a long time? Yeah, I was the business editor of the LA Times. My team, give them all the credit. They, they, And I had a hand in shaping it, but they did the work to won a Pulitzer Prize for looking at those high human costs of low prices at Walmart. Um, back in 2004, the, we won the Pulitzer for national reporting. And since then, yes, I followed the company closely, but that's why I, I knew something was going on inside, you know, as they began to raise wages uh, and make these changes, it's a story I really wanted to tell. And the institute where I have been working, the Drucker Institute, we actually got some philanthropic funding for a lifelong learning and workforce development project. And lo and behold, Walmart was one of the early funders and, and an important funder to us. I was really shocked at first. We got the funding. I thought, man, maybe they're trying to buy me off or something like that. <laughs> yes. um, but it didn't matter. It gave me a new window inside the company. I met some you know, executives and I said, hey, look, who better to tell your story of the transformation that you've made than a longtime critic like me? But if I do so, I'm going to need open access and I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm going to talk to the unions. I'm going to talk to United for Respect and your critics. And then I'm going to come to my own truth. And, and that truth is still broke, the book that, that you have there. And if people want to know more about this, tell us a little more about United for Respect and where we can find out about them. Yeah, you should, you should uh, look them up, run by a wonderful woman named Andrea Dillendorf, longtime labor activist. Again, they, they spun out of the Food and Commercial Workers Union as uh, our Walmart was the group. And what made it a little different, they really, it's not, so first of all, they're not a union. They're not trying to collectively bargain against Walmart, but they have been a way for um, workers to organize themselves and uh, exercise their collective voice uh, against the company, demanding higher wages, improved benefits, and so on. They still have a very strong presence in terms of, uh, you know, pushing against the company. Um, and interestingly, they've now, United for Respect, has expanded 
well beyond Walmart to actually take on Amazon. Uh, they were very involved taking on Toys R Us as it was going through bankruptcy um, and other low paying retailers. Um, so it's it's become a, an organization that now extends well beyond workers just at Walmart. Rick Wartzman, his new book is Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. Rick, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.